All right, well, good morning, church. It's so good to see all of you here uh, this morning. Listen, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Will Franco. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if you're visiting us here today, we are so glad you are here today. And uh, this morning, uh, we are continuing our seven-week series entitled Weapons of Self-Destruction. Weapons of Self-Destruction. And if you're new here, what we are doing in this series is we are working our way through the seven deadly sins. And uh, for those of you who have been following along in this series, what we've discovered as we've worked our way through these seven deadly sins is that the seven deadly sins are actually much more like the seven daily sins. And they are sins and habits that we participate in willingly uh, that hinder our spiritual growth. And so this morning, we are going to be addressing the sin of lust, the sin of lust. And in order to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at a passage in the New Testament um, from 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, if you turn to the end of your Bible and go left, you'll run into the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. And uh, one of the things that we do here is we have people stand for the reading of God's word. So if you can please stand. And uh, as I read from 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be here on the screen behind me. But if you're with me, say amen. amen. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Everyone say sinful desires. Sinful which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful for your precious word. And Father, I ask in, in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit that as I address, I address this, what can be a very difficult subject, uh, I pray, Lord, that you would keep me close to your word. And that what I say would be from, directly from the text and uh, directly through the lens of Scripture. So that as we address this difficult subject, we can see what you have to say about it and what solution you provide. Father, we love you. And we ask that you would be with us now. And all God's people said, Amen. you may be seated. All right, so like I already mentioned, this morning we are continuing our series entitled Weapons of Self-Destruction. And the sin that we are addressing this morning is the sin of of lust. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the sin of lust under two headings. And I've been kind of using this outline for each sin. And uh, here's what we're going to do. Uh, this morning, we are going to begin by looking at the problem of lust. And then after we look at the problem of lust, we are going to conclude by looking at the solution for lust. So we're going to look at the problem of it, and then we will look at the solution for it. Now, the thing about the problem of lust is that it's such a multi-layered problem that what I want to do as we address this problem is I want to look at it from three different angles or three different perspectives. There are three layers to this problem of lust that we need to peel back if we are going to get a biblical understanding of this problem. So in order to address the problem, we're going to look at the definition of lust, then we're going to look at the types of lust, and then we're going to look at the power of lust, okay? So let's begin this morning by looking at the definition of lust. If you go back to the passage, uh, here's what Peter says. He says, dear friends, I urge you 
as foreigners and exiles to abstain. The word there, abstain, means to continually stay away from sinful desires. Now, the word there, desires, in some translations, is translated as lust. Now, here's the thing about the word lust, right? When we hear the word lust, at least in our day, in our language, we automatically think of something negative. But what's interesting about the word there, desires, or the word lust, uh, sinful lust, is that the word there, desires, is the Greek word epithumia, epithumia. And what's interesting about that Greek word is that it's actually a neutral word. In Greek, the, the, the word there, epithumia, is neutral. So in other words, it can be good or bad, depending on the context in which it is used, okay? That's why whenever it is a negative thing, you always see a word like sinful in front of it, because the Bible has to give you, describe, we're talking about the bad type of lust or desire. So the word itself is actually a neutral word. And one of the definitions that I came across this week was from a pastor named Eric Raymond, and uh, he's a pastor on the East Coast, and here's what he says about lust. I think this definition helps us to get a better understanding of what the word there, desire, means. He says, what is lust? The word translated lust in the New Testament is epithumia. The word simply means desire. This desire can be good or bad. Whether it is good or bad depends upon how it aligns with God's revealed will. So if you want to know whether or not your epithumia, your lust, your desires are sinful or not, you have to look at, and look at it and see how they align with God's revealed will. Now, I want to further unpack that word epithumia because we've looked at that word here in the past. Um, I'm one of those guys who um, I like preaching, obviously, but I'm also very fascinated with counseling and, and the, just the problem of the human heart, right? Uh, uh, and and the, the reason why I, I think the human heart is so crucial is because in order for us to truly change, we can't just, we can't just preach through the people's hands. We have to preach to people's hearts. And the word epithumia is important because here's what the, that Greek word there means. The, the first three letters, epi, that prefix in Greek means over or beyond, over or beyond. Okay, that's what the word epi there means. And then the, 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 the rest of the word thumia is the word desire. So here is what the, Paul uses this word, James uses this word, and clearly Peter uses this word too. The, the word there, epithumia, it literally means an over desire. So it's not just a desire, it's an over desire. Now, if what you are overly desiring is God, it's a good thing. You can't desire God too much. But when you are overly desiring something other than Jesus, you have a major problem. And the Bible describes that as sinful lust. It is a sinful lust. So if, if we're going to get a, a, an understanding of just how serious this problem is, we have to understand that epithumia is an over-desire. So, so let me give you an example, right? A lot of the things that we have an epithumia towards are good things that we promote to God things. And that's the problem. That's why it's really hard for us to detect our, our desires, these evil desires. Because a lot of times, the things that we are desiring are not actually bad things. It's actually rare that it's a bad thing. They are good things that we have promoted to be God things. Okay? So, so for example, there's nothing wrong with romance. God came up with the idea of romance. But there is something wrong with romanticism. That's when you start finding your identity in a partner or in a spouse. See? 
There's nothing wrong with work. God came up with the idea of work. But there is a problem with workaholism, which is when you start to find your identity in what you do. Not in what Jesus did, but in what you do. Okay? There's nothing wrong with material things, but there is something wrong with materialism. There's nothing wrong with consumer goods, but there is something wrong with consumerism. There's nothing wrong with pleasure, but there is something wrong with hedonism. And so the problem is, for a lot of us, is we, we, what we do is we take these desires, good things, and we promote them to be God things. And when we do that, we are sinning against God. The desire has become an over-desire, and we have replaced God on the throne of our hearts. That's why C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, no natural feelings are high or low, holy or unholy in themselves. Listen to this. They are all holy when God's hand is on the ring. They all go bad when they set up on their own and make themselves into false gods. That's when we have a problem. They're holy as long as God's in control. But when God is no longer holding the reins, those things, those good things, it could be our spouse, our children, our job, our career, right? It could be anything. It could be our, our, our future, our past. We take those things and we make them God things. And when they do that, they become false gods. And now you, you, you're, you're actually, your religion has shifted. You're, you're believing a false gospel. And that's why this is so dangerous. Now, here, here's, what, here's what I want to do just under this the definition point, okay? I think it's important for us to just pause here for a second. For a lot of you, you've heard this before, right? But if you're anything like me, you probably have the tendency to minimize just how important this conversation is. And for some of you, this is actually the first time that you're hearing this. And I actually believe that one of the things that the enemy does is he tries to keep us from truly diagnosing what our actual problem is. As long as we don't know what the problem is, we're never going to seek the right solution. And so the reason why this conversation of lust is so important is, but I would argue that in many ways, this is the most foundational of all the seven deadly sins we're looking at. Because you, before you commit any other one of those sins, you have to desire something more than God. And so this is a major theme, a major uh, uh, category that the Bible uses to explain to us why we are so messed up. So if you don't know what the Bible says about lusts and over-desires, inordinate desires, then you don't know how serious your problem is. So one of the, one of the people that I read this week who I just have tons of respect for is a, a, a doctor named Dr. David Polison. And look what he says about this idea of lust. He says, lust of the flesh, cravings or pleasures, listen to this, is a summary term for what is wrong with us in God's eyes. So God uses that phrase, lust, lust of the flesh, and you need that flesh part because it, it's what makes it a bad lust, right? He, 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 God uses that phrase, that, that, that term, that category, lust of the flesh, as a summary term for what is wrong with us in his eyes. In sin, people turn from God to serve what they want. By grace, people turn to God from their cravings. According to the Lord's assessment, we all formally lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. 
So this is important. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, which the first few verses of Ephesians 2 is where, where Paul just goes to town on us and says, hey, listen, you, before you came to Christ, you were spiritually dead. And the only reason why you even know God is because he made you alive. As he describes who we were before Jesus, he says that one of the things that made us dead is that we followed the desires of the flesh. We didn't even think about it. We were controlled by the desires of the flesh. Then he says, those outside of Christ are thoroughly controlled by what they want. But the term lust has become almost useless to modern readers of the Bible. It is reduced to sexual desire. Take a poll of the people in your church, asking them the meaning of lust of the flesh. Sex will appear on every list. But the subtleties, I think is the word, but the subtleties and details are watched out and a crucial biblical term for explaining human life languishes. So, so before we move, go back to that previous slide, before we move on, so it's not less than physical lust. It's not less than that. But what we see is that it's much more than that. So we'll talk about the physical thing in a second, but it's much more than that. And one of the things that the enemy wants you to do is to keep lust in just the category of sex so that you have no idea that it's actually destroying every other area of your life. So it's not less than that, but it's much more than that. He says when we do that, we lose a crucial biblical term for explaining why your human life languishes. Then he says, in contrast, the New Testament writers use this term as a comprehensive category for the human dilemma. It will pay us to think carefully about its manifold meanings. We need to expand the meaning of a term that has been truncated and drained of significance. We need to learn to understand life through these lenses and to use these categories skillfully. The New Testament repeatedly focuses on the lusts of the flesh as a summary of what is wrong with the human heart that underlies bad behavior. So I know that's a very long quote, but essentially what he's saying is if you don't understand the concept of lust, of over-desires, you are not going to understand why you have so much problems in your marriage, with your money, with anxiety. In other words, in every area where you have an action problem, the reason why you have an action problem is because you actually have an affection problem. There's a problem underneath the problem. And until you address, address that problem, you're never really going to deal with the issue. Okay, so in many ways, this, this lust conversation, like I said, is, the, is foundational to the rest of uh, the series. And, and one of the things that we have to be careful with in our culture is our culture looks, uses modern language and lingo to try to minimize things like this. So, so what our culture does is many modern counselors, and unfortunately sometimes Christian counselors, what they do is they look at the needs people have and they call them felt needs or wants or desires, whatever it is they want to call them, and they make it seem like those are the things that should drive your life. And so the goal of counseling, and, and in many ways, sadly, the, the goal of preaching is to meet the felt needs of people. The problem is I don't really think that's biblical because according to this passage, your, your felt needs, your wants are just as impacted as every other part of your life. So, so, the problem when counselors and preachers act like your needs are, are unchangeable, your wants are unchangeable, is they then they pretend as if God has to meet your needs. But God's not here to just do what you want. God is here to do what you actually need. 
and to give you the desires that you actually have to have. See, back in the Enlightenment period, people would say, I think, therefore I am. It was all about how you thought. Back in that time, and for a long time, that's where modernism came from, for a long time, if you didn't think, then people really didn't respect it. You had to preach and talk to the head. But what's changed over the past few decades in postmodernism is that now it's not I think, therefore I am, it's I feel, therefore I am. So I feel like I'm a boy, or I feel like I'm a girl, or I feel like I'm this, or I feel like I'm that. And what starts to happen when your emotions are what determine your identity is you, you think and you do and you are whatever you feel. I think this is part of the reason why there's so much depression in our day and so much teenagers struggling with suicide. Because we live in a culture where it says whatever you feel is the most important thing. Well, what happens when the feelings you have are negative? See, that's the danger of it. When, when your feelings are what drive you, and all of a sudden you don't like yourself or you hate yourself, it doesn't matter what anyone else says because your feelings are the most important thing. I feel this way, so it doesn't matter what you say. The Bible shows up and says, no, 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 not only should you not trust your feelings, you should re-examine them and reprioritize them. Because God didn't come here to meet your needs or your feelings. He came here to completely transform them. And I would be doing a disservice to you if all I did was preach to your felt needs. I don't really care about your felt needs. Because God doesn't care about your felt needs. So, that's the, the definition. Let's go back to the three subpoints. So that's the definition of lust. Now, after we've looked at the definition, what I want to do is I want to take a closer look at the types. Did you know that when it comes to the types of lust, there's literally an unlimited quantity of lust. Lusts are as numerous as there are people. One pastor put it this way. He says that we will over-desire anything within reach and anything within sight. That's how bad it is. We can over-desire anything within reach and anything within sight. So lusts are just as numerous as there are people in this room and people on this planet. You will be shocked what people will over-desire. Some of them are very common that all of us kind of struggle with, but some of them are way out there. And lusts are as creative as we are. They will, they, we will create one out of the blue. Okay? Let me read another quote from Dr. Uh, David Polison. He talks about the types of lust here. He says, with good reason, the Bible usually refers to the lusts, plural, of the flesh. The human heart can generate a lust tailored to any situation. Again, John Calvin powerfully described how cravings boil up within us and how the mind of man is a factory of idols. We are infested with lust. Everyone say infested. infested. Listen closely to any person given to complaining and you will observe, you will observe, absorb, uh, observe the creativity of our cravings. 
Certainly, one particular craving may so frequently appear that it seems to be a root sin. So he says some of them are, are common among many. Here are some of the examples that we all kind of share. Uh, the love of money, uh, fear of man and craving for approval, uh, love of preeminence or control, desire for pleasure, and so forth can dictate much of life. But all people have all the typical cravings. Listen, realizing the diversity in human lust gives great flexibility and insight to counsel. This is why he's one of my favorite biblical counselors, and I love reading his stuff, because he understands that lust can vary from person to person and from situation to situation and sometimes from season to season. And that's why this is so dangerous. And so as, as you're sitting here today and you are trying to discover what your lusts are, what your over-desires are, here are some of the questions you can ask yourself, right? I, I don't have time to give you an entire list, but here are some of the questions that you can ask yourself. One question you can ask yourself is, and he kind of referenced it, is what do you find yourself complaining about? Is there an area in your life that you're constantly complaining about? Your marriage, your job, your kids, your future, your retirement, politics. Whatever you complain about, actually underneath the complaining is because it's what J.A. Uh, Smith says, in, in K.A. Smith says in his book, uh, You Are What You Love, uh, um, th th there's a kingdom that you desire and that kingdom isn't coming to fruition. And many times that kingdom is not the kingdom of God, it's our own kingdom. And so we complain because the world is not as it should be. What are you complaining about today? Another way that you can determine what your, your, uh, your uh, over-desires are is what do you fear? I don't know if you know this, but fear is one of the easiest ways to determine what your actual God is. Fear is one of the easiest ways to determine what you actually desire is. Here's why. Because if you fear rejection, then what it means is you worship acceptance. The Bible says we shouldn't fear anything but God. Okay? If you fear poverty, then it means you worship wealth. If you fear singleness, then it means you worship romance. And that's the danger, that your, your fears... Uh, you might not even know it, but your fears actually reveal what you actually desire. I'm so terrified of this because what I actually want is this. Another way that you can figure out what your lusts are is what do you, what do you daydream about? What, 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 do you, what do you fantasize about? What, what's the thing that you just, whenever you have any time alone to yourself, any time where you could just let your mind wander, where does your mind go? What is your your perfect scenario. What, what needs to happen for you to be content? For everything to be made right. Is it a united family? Is it a, a good retirement fund? Is it, I don't know. What, what, what is the thing that you say, if I have that, a family with kids, everything will be better. But anyone here who has a family with kids know that things get worse. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> it doesn't get better. They're a blessing, but a burden. <laughs> All right? So, 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 so those are some, what do I complain about? What do I fear? What do I dream about? 
But, but I think the question you have to, and this is where I kind of want to unpack the physical part real quick. Because there are, there are people here, like I said earlier, it, it, this, this topic, this, this, this theme of lust is not more, it's not less than the sexual component, but it's more than it. But, but I want to take just a few, a few moments and, and, and address the, the, the sexual part. There are people here at Tri-Village Church who are drowning in sexual sin. Who are completely overwhelmed by it. Whether that's pornography, whether that's uh, masturbation, whether that's uh, 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 considering adultery, whether you're, you're navigating your own sexuality and you're having these struggles internally. But there are people here who, who are drowning under this sin. And what we see is one of the things that can happen in church, and it breaks my heart when we do it, is we treat sexual sin like it's worse than any other sin. And so you have people that, that let's say you're struggling with homosexuality, right? And that they'll, they'll treat you different, even though they're lusting for something other than Jesus themselves. But you're less than because it's not the same sin I struggle with. And what breaks my heart is that the church where people should feel the safest, people feel like they can't come here. I, I got I to get my act together if I'm going to go to that church. That's the most unbiblical thing I've ever heard. It's like someone saying, I got to lose 40 pounds and then go to the gym. It's at the gym where you get help. It's at the gym where you make progress. And so listen, regardless of where you are struggling sexually, we need you to know that there's a place for you here at Tri-Village Church. And that no one here is better than you. If anything, we're worse. And the same Savior that saves us is the same Savior that can save you. Amen? Amen? So here, here's essentially what we need to do as we understand the types. For many of us, and this is all the categories that I just, that I just mentioned, for many of us, the things that we over-desire, sometimes they can be bad things, but by and large, they're good things. And here's the thing about those good things. They were meant to be just that, good things. It says in James that, that every good and perfect gift is from above, from, from the Father of lights, with, who there, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It says that every good gift is from God, and the problem is, that these things are good gifts, but they are really, really good gifts, but they are really, really bad gods. Your children are a great gift, but they are a terrible God. Your spouse is a great gift, but they are a terrible God. Money is a great gift. And we'll talk about money when we, when we address greed in a couple weeks. Money is a great gift, but it is a terrible, terrible God. So my prayer for you as we address this is that today would be the day where you don't remove those things, but you just demote them back to where they belong. Amen. Where you can seek first the kingdom of God, it says in Matthew, and everything else will be added onto you. But put God back where he belongs. These things are good, good gifts, but really, really bad gods. So we've seen the definition. Um, we've seen the types. And what I want to do in this last part of the problem, as we, as we unpack and diagnose the problem, is I just want to take a moment and explain to you just how powerful, how devastating the impact of lust actually is. So if you've been tracking with me up to this point, what you have discovered, and what I discovered this week, 
is that behind every action, behind every sinful action, there is a sinful affection. If you have, if you're taking notes, write that down. Behind every sinful action, there is a sinful affection. In other words, behind the what, whatever it is you're struggling with, behind that what, there is a why. And the why is lust. The why is an over-desire of something smaller than Jesus. So, so, so what we see, and this came from my reading this week, these over-desires, they... Part of the reason why we struggle uh, in, in navigating them is because they manifest themselves differently, right? These, these over-desires come out in our words. They come out in our actions. They come out in our thoughts. They come out in our emotions. They come out in how we dream and how we plan. It's like there are so many symptoms of it that it's hard for us to imagine that they all come from the same place. But that's what the Bible says. They all come from the same place. And I want to tell you just two areas in which that display just how powerful the sin of lust is. It, it affects you relationally, but it also affects you spiritually. Listen, the first way that the sin of lust affects you, or you see the power of this lust, is you see it relationally. And I mentioned this last week when I was at Wheaton Bible Church, and we were talking about anger and conflict. But in James chapter 4, in verses 1 through 3 of James chapter 4, James says, he, he says, listen, he, he asks the question. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? It's a great question because I have fights and quarrels all the time, right? Then he says, because he knows we're not smart enough to answer the question ourselves. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And the Greek word there, passions, is the word epithumia. He says, the reason why you have external conflict and turmoil is because you actually have internal conflict and turmoil. So when a husband and a wife disagree about something, no matter what it is, on the surface, it just seems like a fight about the garbage or about a bill or about the kids or about the future, right? But what James is saying is that there's actually a theological battle going on. There are over-desires that the wife has. There are over-desires that the husband has. And they, there's literally a, 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 a religious war, religious warfare going on. The, the husband desires to be respected. He overly desires to be accepted and, 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 and respected. And the wife overly desires to be listened to or to have control or whatever it is. And, and, and so in that moment, it seems like a, just an innocent fight. But what James is saying is that the reason why there's external conflict is because there's actually internal conflict inside all of us. Our passions are at war within us. We're going to talk about that concept of war in a second because Peter actually uses the same language. So get this. James is saying that in James 4 that the reason why we have conflict is because we have cravings. Our conflict is a direct result of our cravings. And in that moment, you wouldn't be able to determine that and actually, I would argue that the more angry you are, the less likely you are to diagnose what's really bothering you. But James says that with every conflict, every external conflict, there's an internal conflict happening inside both individuals. Not just one, but inside both. So if, you're as a, if, you, if you are, is that, that, that can be a disagreement with your spouse. That can be a disagreement with your, your, your kids. That can be a disagreement with your coworkers or your boss. 
with every conflict, external conflict, there's an internal conflict taking place. Okay? So, so the first way, oh, and real quick, just to, to summarize this relational part. That's why it bothers me when, when people say, oh, the reason why I got angry is because my child did this. Or the reason why I'm so bothered is because my boss did this. Or the reason why I, I, just, I, I lose my cool is because my spouse did this. Well, what we see in Scripture is that all those things were already inside you, and all that person did was bump up against you and gave you an opportunity to reveal what was already in your heart. So you don't have a spouse problem, you have a sin problem. And so it's always someone else's fault for why we flew off the handle. It's always someone else's fault for why we are impatient. The Bible says, no, it's your fault. All they did is like, you, is, I've used this illustration in the past, you have a cup of coffee and what they did, or a cup of sin, and all they did was bump up against you and the sin came out. But it was in your cup. No one put it there. That's why Jesus says that what comes out of, the, what comes out of your mouth was already in your heart. No one put it there. It was already there. That person just gave you an opportunity to reveal how big of a sinner you are. So you should thank them. <laughs> so, this sin of lust is so powerful that it affects us relationally. But it also, and I think this is even more dangerous, it affects us spiritually. And here's what I mean by spiritually. I don't know if you've ever seen this, and I don't have time to go to it now, but if you have time this week, I, I would recommend you go look. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells the parable of the soils. And then after he tells the parable, he explains to the people what he meant by the different types of soil. There's the, there's the, there's the, soil, the, the, the rocky soil, there's the soil that was not, not too deep, and different types of soils, right? But when you see Jesus' explanation, he says that one of the reasons why people don't believe the gospel is because as the seed starts to grow, it says the desires of the flesh choke them out. So there's some of you who maybe this is your first time at church, or maybe this is your second time or 10th time, or you haven't been at church, this is your first time in church in 10 years. And every time you try to give Jesus a chance, it doesn't stick. And you're like, why doesn't this stick? Well, according to Jesus, one of the reasons might be is that you, you desire to love Jesus and, and, and follow him, right? But then as you go back into your life, you, you, you go back into to worship your old gods. So you can't worship the real God because you're too busy worshiping false gods. Every person in here is worshiping something. And what Jesus says in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 4 is that one of the things that chokes out our, that gospel seed, that faith in him, is faith in things that are smaller than him. And I would argue that that's true not just for people who are considering Christianity, but it's true for Christians. In my own life, there are times where I just don't believe the gospel, where I, don't, where I find Jesus lacking. I don't find him beautiful. I don't find him sufficient. In those moments, the reason why is because the desires of the flesh have choked out the desires of my desires for Christ. So spiritually, this has a major impact on your life. That's why this is such a powerful thing. But then in James chapter 1, James takes it to a whole nother level. And what he does, some of you have seen this passage, but what he does is he says, the reason why this is such a dangerous uh, uh, sin, this sin of lust, 
is because it leads to much more serious consequences. Not only does it choke out the gospel in your life, but look what it says in James 1, 13 through 15. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But listen to this. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. And guess what word's that? Epithumia. They are dragged away by their own evil epithumia and enticed. Then, after epithumia has con conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So, so one of the, the problems, like I said, everyone here is worshiping something. Even though if you're not a Christ follower, right, you are believing in some sort of gospel. You are believing in some sort of good news. You are believing that something can save you. Whatever that is, what James says is that that desire, when you allow it to conceive, he uses birth language, it gives birth to sin, and a lot of times it's plural, sins. And then if you allow that to grow, eventually it leads to death. It's what C.S. Lewis, when he, I brought this up a few months ago, where C.S. Lewis says that we live our entire lives saying, my will be done, my will be done, my will be done. He says one of the things that's so difficult about hell, and this breaks God's heart, but it's when God finally says, okay, your will be done. You don't want me in your life? Cool. I'm not going to force myself on you. Go. Have whatever it is you think you need. More money, more time, more resources. Unchecked desires lead to sin. Unchecked sin eventually leads to death. Every desire that you're pursuing is a road that leads somewhere. Along that road, there's sin, and at the end of that road is death. So this is very, very important. Now, if you go back to uh, the passage that, that we've been looking at, I want to show you something uh, from 1 Peter. He says something here that, that just, I just think shows us how serious this issue is spiritually. He says, we are to abstain from sinful desires. Listen to this. Listen to this. Which wage war against your soul. That, that, that Greek phrase there, wage war, here's what it means in Greek. It is an organized military campaign with generals and soldiers. So this isn't a one-time battle. Your flesh is in an all-out war against you. It's not like, hey, I, I, got, I, I, I had a battle on Tuesday and I'm done, I'm good. for the No, no, no. Every day, your flesh puts on and sets up an organized military campaign against you. You are in an all-out war every single day, which is why it, it bothers me when, when counselors and preachers and just any of us who, who, who have been affected by what the world says about it is, we, we, we got to manage our desires. Well, no, no, what, what, what Peter is saying is we don't manage our desires, we mortify them, which is an old way of saying we kill the sinful desires. Because this is an all-out battle that we're in. Christianity is not passive. I heard, I heard a pastor say that um, uh, grace is opposed to earning, but not opposed to effort. Get that? So, so because of grace, I don't have to earn anything anymore. But it doesn't mean I don't, there's no effort involved. I, I have to now live in light of the truth, that live, in light of, live a life worthy of the gospel, Right? So grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. There is a battle going on. 
And if you pretend like it's anything other than that, you, I better, you better believe you're losing it. If you don't know what's going on, you're losing it. Because you can't win a battle that you don't know you're in. And the word there, soul, it, it means your whole person. So it doesn't just mean your spiritual side. It says that your, your lusts of the flesh are so dangerous that it's literally destroying your whole entire person. You are an all-out war, the Bible says. And the sooner you can recognize that, the sooner you can do something about it. Let's go to the two points again. So hopefully by now, we can all agree that we have a problem with lust. Amen? But now that we have uh, understand the, the severity of the problem, what I want to do is I want to spend just a few minutes looking at the, the splendor of the solution. Right? Now that we have a, a biblical diagnosis, I think it's important for us to, to seek a biblical cure. Now here's the thing. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were looking at envy. One of the mistakes that we can make when we look at this sin of lust is we can assume that since the things that we are lusting after are out there, we can assume that what we actually have is an external problem. And because it's an external problem, then we need to have an external solution. We need to cut ourselves away from those things that we are lusting after. The problem is, which we've already discovered, is that a lot of the things that we over-desire are good things. We can't push away our spouse. We can't push away our kids. We can't quit our jobs. So the answer can't be external, and it can't just be a removing of the thing because then we would be left with anything, nothing because we all worship everything. So if the answer is, if the problem is not primarily external, then what it means is the problem is actually internal. The sad thing, and I know I'm guilty of this too, a lot of Christians, what they do is they deal with the symptoms of lust without ever actually dealing with the source of it. So there's one pastor who I really respect. His name's Ray Ortland. He says, a lot of us, uh, we repeatedly are tearing down the spider webs, but never actually kill the spider. So, so once a week, we're like, pastor, yeah, this room's a mess, man. Tell me what to do about this area of my life. Yeah, and tear all the spider webs down. And then next week, oh, yeah, yeah, I got yeah, let me tear all the spider webs down. He says, you can tear the, 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 the webs down all you want, but if you don't ever kill the spider, then the webs are just going to come right back. And so we need to understand and we need to recognize that it's, it's an internal problem. It's an inside problem, so it requires an inside job. Now, here's the thing. The answer to our lust is actually, and get this, is lust. The solution to our lust is lust. The solution to our lesser desires is a greater desire. I, 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 I'm a big basketball fan, and, and, and there, there are certain uh, teams that what they do is they know that the best defense is actually a great offense. The best defense sometimes is a, is a great offense. And actually, Paul gets after it a little bit. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he tells Timothy, I want you to flee from youthful desires, epithumia. And then he says, and pursue blank. I'm not going to tell you what he says because then it will kill my end of my sermon. But, but he says, he says it's not, you don't just flee from something, you pursue something. See? What we need to see is that in order for us to really deal with this issue, we need to run away from something and run towards something else. The answer to our sinful lust is a godly lust. 
The answer to our lesser desires is a greater desire. But, but, but the question is, what desire can be greater? What, what should we be striving for, seeking after? Well, here's what's beautiful about Scripture. The Bible makes it very clear all throughout Scripture that, that, that the greater affection, the greater desire that you and I should be gravitating towards, pursuing on a daily basis, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, now here, here's the thing. If you go back to the passage, I, I need you to see this, okay? Um, he, he, he says some very important things here that if you're not careful, you can completely miss, okay? So one of the things that people do, uh, preachers, counselors, whoever it is, that's people in Bible studies when they're, when they're addressing this, this passage, is, is, is they go straight into the command and they isolate the command from the rest of the context. Right. So so you have people who will go straight into the part where it says, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires. Stop doing it. Don't ever do it again. Abstain from sinful desires. The problem is when you do it, you actually miss the order that Peter is using. You actually, in your desire to focus on the command, you actually miss the entire context, not just of the passage, but of the entire letter. Because if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is talking to us about our identity in Christ and about Jesus being our, our cornerstone a little bit later. He, he's talking about all the work that Jesus has done and the living hope that we have in the gospel. All he's talking about is gospel, 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 gospel. Then he gets to this section and he actually begins with the gospel again. He says, dear friends, which we're looking at what that word means in a second and then he describes them as foreigners and exiles so he just gave them gospel for a chapter and a half then he actually begins with gospel again because the word there dear friends which the niv butchers what it actually means is it it's dearly beloved it literally means to be someone's favorite it means to be the object of someone's affection but the question is who is the person who loves us? Who is the person who's chosen us? Who is the person which we are the object of their affection? The Bible says that the person is God the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. So, 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 so get this. What, what Peter is doing, Peter takes what could be one of the most legalistic passages in the Bible. He says, listen, what's going to change you is not the law of God, it's the love of God. So, so, so follow with me here. What, what Peter does in order to really address this issue that we have is he says, listen, I'm going to give you grace before I give you guidelines. I'm going to give you acceptance before I give you application. I'm going to give you assurance before I give you actions. I'm going to give you an identity before I give you implications. I'm going to give you uh, an indicative before I give you an imperative. I'm going to give you a cross before I give you a command. I'm going to remind you of your position before I give you any precepts. Can I get an amen? Is that okay? Okay, just checking. Okay, so, so, so Peter is saying that the only way that we're going to deal with this problem is if we understand that we're already accepted, already loved, already approved, already secured in Christ. And so it changes everything. It, it, it makes the command look completely different when you see that the urging that he's doing is grounded not in the work that you do, but in the work that Jesus has already done. So, so what we see is that the, the, 
the new affection, actually Thomas Chalmers, who's this, who's this Puritan, he said that the, the best way to deal with a sinful affection, he says, is with the expulsive power of a new affection. The way you deal with your sinful affection, your old affection, he says, is with the expulsive power of a new affection. And the question is, what is that new affection? Well, what we see is that the, the new affection, the only thing that can truly satisfy our hearts, according to the Bible, is the, the adequacy, the, the beauty, the, the glory, the supremacy, and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is like, unlike any other lust. And the reason why Jesus is like, unlike any other lust is because any other thing that you lust after will eventually pass away. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 2 about worldliness. Every other thing that you lust after will eventually pass away. But Jesus stays the same. My Bible says in Hebrews 13 that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. And so when, I, when, I, when he is the thing I lust after, he is the thing that I desire, no one can take it away. And the same Jesus that was with Paul on the road to Damascus is the same Jesus that I have today. And the same Jesus that was on the mountain with the disciples and transfigured before them is the same Jesus that I have today. And the same Jesus who ascended into heaven after he resurrected is the same Jesus that we have today. And the same Jesus that one day is going to come back on a horse is the same Jesus that we have today. He doesn't change. It's the same Jesus. And so what we see that what we need, listen to this, what we need is not separation from the world. What we need is satisfaction in the Lord. Amen. Let me say that again. What we need to deal with our lust problem is not separation from the world. It's satisfaction in the Lord. What we need is not an external amputation, but it's an internal transformation. We need to flee from our sinful desires, according to 2 Timothy, and we are to pursue the greater godly gospel desires. Listen, to the degree that you see Jesus as adequate, to that same degree you will see your sinful desires as inadequate. And to the degree that you see Jesus placing his affections on you, to that same degree, you will place your affections on him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you this morning, and we are so grateful that even though the problem is bad, like really, really, really bad, we thank you that the solution is good. Like, really, really, really good. Help us, Jesus, like C.S. Lewis says, to, to not settle for earthly desires. Our problem is that, and we'll talk about this more next week when we talk about, we talk about gluttony, our problem uh, is not that we have too much desire, but we actually have too little. And we are settling for things that are smaller than you. Help us to repent from that today and place you back on the throne of our hearts. We ask it and we beg it. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen, brother. Well, we're going to do something a little differently just as we, as we close today. Um, just in response to what we'll share around, around lust of, of all kinds. I felt compelled uh, by the Spirit to share a song that really has been a, a, prayer, a prayer for me when I couldn't find words to say myself. 
There was a time a few years ago when I was at rock bottom in the delves of, of my own lust and sin, a place where I felt so distant and disgusting within my own humanity that I couldn't even pray. What could I say to a, to a, a holy God um, in, the, in the state that I found myself? And all I had to say or to, or, or to sing in this case was the song that, that I wrote when I, I felt literally in a place where I, I couldn't even pray. And so I know I can't be the only one that's found themselves in that season or that, or that sort of a place before. And, and knowing we're all a family here at Tri-Village, I felt it so heavy on me this week from the Father that this was a time to, to share this, this song that the Lord had, had given to me to, to those of us that find ourselves, as Will even said before, in a place that we f- feel less than unloved, unworthy. And we know that that's not true in light of the gospel. Uh, but this, this is a song that I still sing almost weekly. Um, and uh, and I'm gonna, we'll put the words on the screen. And, uh, and, but no need to stand. Just kind of, kind of rest in, in the moment here. And, and maybe this can be your prayer this morning as well. Father, I'm sorry My frailness is exposing A heart that is destroyed Who you are me to be Alone in the quiet your spirit, my conscience grows, speaks clearly, I'm defiant, I'm scared in my shadow, oh my heart belongs to you, you've shown me Your name. 
So much. 